Hello all and welcome to episode number 16 of the Cut Curator Podcast. I am your host, Rob G. The General. Digitally archived conversations with iconic rap pioneers about the songs and the backbones that form the heritage of hip-hop. And today we are speaking to Christopher Play Martin, one half of the dynamic duo known as Kid and Play. This conversation is surprising to say the least uh to learn about his days as a stick-up kid in queens his father who spent time in and out of prison throughout most of his life only to be redeemed and become a minister and how he and kid were actually members of two separate groups that used to consistently battle one another and when it all came down in the wash only two remained kid and play our conversation was so good and so lengthy, i've got to break this up into two parts so you will hear part two coming up on tuesday and a friendly reminder before we get started, please continue to rate and review the page. Share with all your friends who are of like minds, man. Get it to all the music lovers that you know possible, please. So for everyone who's downloaded from San Jose, California, all the way to Brisbane, Australia, I truly appreciate your support. Let's keep this thing going, all right? Thank you very much. Without any further ado, Christopher Play Martin on the Cut Curator Podcast. How you doing, bro? I'm good, General. How are you doing? Man, I'm doing awesome. I want to thank you, number one, for uh, joining me on here on, on my passion project, the Cut Curator Podcast, man. Just trying to digitally archive these conversations with rap legends such as yourself. No problem. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you. Let's do this. Let's start at the very beginning, man. Do you remember when you fell in love with hip-hop? Um, yeah, I do. Um, it's interesting because to me, uh, if someone was to ask me what was my very first rap record, which I do ask in my interviews and stuff, what was the very first rap record you heard? And, and if even if it wasn't the first, name the one that did something to you, had an effect on you that you weren't able to necessarily articulate. And for me, that would be Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Fives, um, super rapid. It was a party night, everybody was breaking, the highs was screaming and the bass was shaking and it won't be long till everybody knowing that flash was on the beat boss going that flash was on the beat boss going that flash was on the beat boss going and 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 shana na and I would say that's when that that really moved me for some odd reason. You can't put your finger on it? Well, no, I just know. I think it had a lot to do with the lyrics. Um, they were really, and still are, if they choose to be, very successful in regards to bringing over a certain confidence, uh, of, and masters of, of wordplay and being able to describe um, uh, uh, an emotion or describe an, an action or an adventure in rap and convince me um, that it actually took place or, or vicariously bring me through it. Um, Melly Mel, awesome. Cut Cre I mean, I just felt, I love their names. You know, at the time it was, it was um, uh, Mr. Ness before it was Scorpio and Kid Creole and Cowboy and uh, Melly Mel and um, Raheem. Just awesome, you know, just for it to be on wax. Right. It was just incredible, you know. 
do you remember um, or were you old enough to go to any of the house part? I mean, the the block parties that they used to have back in the day. Uh, our main thing, you know, in Queensbridge, you know, which was uh, uh, incredibly um, wrapped and described by MC Shan. These brothers made you get loose. They were down with a brother called Cousin Bruce. They used to jam in the center. You had to pay so you could enter. Go to the door, get frisked, just in order to get in. And if you wasn't from this town, then you couldn't fight and win. But every time they had a jam, they couldn't get no peace. So that's why the jams out there in the park, they had to seize, cause you was in the You know, I remember going to theirs and uh, where I live, what am I talking about? Where I lived at, which was in Queens, East Elmhurst, Queens, you know, truth be told, a lot of people in New York, no matter living in the Bronx, Brooklyn, whatever, everyone came out of their way to come to this place in East Elmhurst, Queens called the 7. It was 127, PS 127 school, but the park uh, um, connected to it was called the 7. Uh, matter of fact, Booty Land, because it was a, Big dance back then, it used to be called The Freak, but it used to call it Booty Land. But anyway, you had uh, Donnie Dance Masters, King Charles. Um, when the DJ Twins? The Twins, they spun mostly in Astoria, Queens. Okay. But yeah, they did every once in a while I was there. But those parties were legendary. And it was more about the music. You didn't have too much rap. You didn't, they really didn't have any rapping at all. It was basically the, the era of... Um, Transship Express. Craftwork and all of them, you know, was uh, My Love is Free by Double Exposure. And the producer that would transform those park jams into an actual center jam, which was St. Gabriel's, was a guy by the name of Jeff Harris that would bring groups like Crown Heights Affair. Slave. 
all of them to that uh, St. Gabriel's school, to the gymnasium. But eventually at the Holiday Inn, it was right. Matter of fact, if you wanted to know geographically where we were at, we were basically LaGuardia Airport. So you had all of the hotels around there. So at the Holiday Inn was the time that he brought in Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, which was a historic time for that part of Queens at that time. For you uh, growing up, like say in the middle of all that, what was your relation to hip hop? Because it seemed like, you know, I know growing up in, in, in Detroit and then later in Dallas, everybody tried to find their place, trying to find their role, whether it was breaking or graffiti, you know, DJing we, or rapping. It's like we all tried our hand at one thing or another. Were you in, did you have your hand in, 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 every, in every pot? I was very adventurous. You know, I was a very, I, I, was, I, was, I was not really good at being a good child. You know, I broke day. I mean, but I stayed out past, stayed out at night. I I went past when the the street lights would come on. So I was very adventurous with with a couple of others. But in regards to what you're talking about, my introduction to it was being very skilled, or so I was told, being very skilled at art, graphic art. So I drew a lot. You know, from comic book characters to whatever was going on in my imagination. So when it was time for me to go to pick a high school, I was accepted to three of the uh, top three art and and uh, music uh, high schools in New York. I was accepted to the High School of Music and Art. I was accepted to Art and Design. And I was accepted to the High School of Performing Arts. And I ended up choosing the High School of Art and Design. My My parents and family members thought that was a better path for me rather than the music, which I also was playing lead and rhythm guitar at the time as well. So when I went to art and design, I got exposed to all the boroughs. And, you know, in that era and at that time, you know, graffiti. So it was very important for you to have your art book, Mm. you know, and to have your, you know, you you walked around with your art book like it was the Bible to a preacher, you know, (laughs) and was very, that was my introduction to hip hop because, I ended up becoming friends, and these guys who were like the coolest guys in the school at the time took me under their wing. Why? I don't know why, because there was nothing about me that was exceptional. I was so far behind on the fashions. My father was um, away a lot in prison, so my mother was a single parent with me and my three sisters most of the time, so we really couldn't afford for me to be up on the fashions, but I, I hung out with these guys. It was Neil, Joseph, Carl. And I'm sure I'm forgetting, oh, Pito. Uh, and each one of them came from different areas of the city. Uh, Joe and, yeah, Joe, there was Joe and Neil. I think they were from the Bronx. Pito was from Manhattan. I know I'm messing it all up. But each one of them came from different boroughs. So I was exposed to the fashions. You know, it was the, the quarter field back then with the fur collar. It was the pleats. Gabardine, there was the mock necks, there was the British Walkers, or the Pumas and Adidas. Nike didn't even didn't even exist then, so that was very influential on me. I remember before my father went away on his longest stint, he had bought me a Honda Z50 mini motorcycle, and I ended up selling it, which disappointed him a lot. But I ended up selling it for three hundred and fifty dollars. And I had the time of my life on Delancey Street where I was able to just transform eventually. 
But anyway, these guys, you know, taught me the arts, the tagging, the uh, alphabet of graffiti. Um, back then, it was the super groups like the Brothers Johnson, Earth, Wind, and Fire, and all that stuff. So we drew a lot of those people who, who were the hit makers at the time. But I remember, you know, of course, you had your breakdancing. And this was the era of hip-hop being, um, what's the word for it, being molded and, and, and being uh, created in the schools because it, there were different high schools in New York, high school, uh, high school of uh, printing high school, Norman Thomas. Norman Thomas was where basically the Treacherous Three was birthed out of, uh, Kumo D and uh, Special K and, and L.A. Sunshine. They used to rap in the lunchrooms. Party on the dance floor, party people want more. Time to hear something from the Treacherous Three, Special K and L.A. Sunshine and the coolest of the Kumo D. Cats couldn't wait to, even if you didn't go to that school, you tried to sneak into that school to be around at lunchtime where these guys would rock, you know, lunchtime. Wow. Uh, before they even made a record and, and all of that. So at Art and Design, they kept telling me, you know, when you were into the breakdancing or watching people breakdance, they kept telling me about this record called Apache by the Bongo Band. Ever, or it felt like it for me to finally hear this record, either wherever I would be at, either it just finished playing or it played after I left, something like that. So it took a long time for me to finally hear the, the B-boy, B-girl, breakdancers anthem, which was Apache. So that was like my first introduction into, into the hip-hop, what would eventually be called hip-hop, because this goes so way back that it wasn't even called hip-hop at the time. The words that was used to describe it is, are they jamming in the park? Are they rapping? Who's on the mic? Who's yelling on the mic? All of that stuff, it didn't have a generic title at that time. So whenever I do my speaking engagements, I usually refer to it as what would be eventually known or called hip hop. What, uh, what, was your, what was your tag name when you were doing graffiti? It took a while for that to happen because how I ended up having an identity in what would eventually be known as the hip hop culture, it, it took a while for me to find myself. Like you kind of alluded to, I, I messed around a little bit with putting two turntables together in my parents' home and that wasn't really it. Then, you know, I did do all right at the private, not the private, the house parties in the neighborhood, you know, break dancing. But I guess where I really excelled at was when it was, you know, a microphone was in my hand. But what I did to finally have an identity in the neighborhood or have some degree of neighborhood fame or borough fame was um, I thought the coolest thing back then that I wanted more than anything, more than, uh, more than a medallion around my neck, more than clothes or whatever, it was cool when you had a nickname. That's what I wanted real bad. So at first I played around with Mr. C. Uh, before that, I think it was Chris C. But I didn't like that because if you said it fast, it sounded like Chrissy. 
Um, <laughs> then when I started, what became really popular and where I started to, my first level of exploding as far as popularity was, everybody wanted me to paint their jeans. Back then, the jeans to have was Lee jeans, and they were the flare leg or the bell bottoms, whatever you wanted to call them. And those jeans were dope because they gave you enough real estate to paint people's names on their on their on their jeans. So everybody, it was only me and one other dude. I think his name was PC Kid. It was two others, PC Kid and Powell. But I I think if I had to say I was the the number one person people were coming to to have their jeans um their their names painted on their jeans. And I was making, you know, a nice amount of money doing that. But how I ended up excelling in that as far as popularity was all of the drug kids was coming to me for their um, jeans to be done. And, like, I would, they would ask me how long it would take to get done. I would tell them, you know, it was like first come, first serve. And sometimes they'd have to wait a while before I got to their jeans. But they would want them so quickly that they would pay for their jeans to to jump the line. You know, like if I was charging 50 cents a letter or 75 cents a letter, which, you know, six letters to a name, maybe 10 at the most, you know, you do the math. But these cats was dropping like 50 bucks on me or $100 for me to hurry up and do their jeans. So that also helped too as far as, you know, me stepping up my gear to become more fashionable. Mm. So I started getting a real name for myself in that area of Queens. And one of the things I mastered at the time was doing the Playboy bunny, the the bunny emblem. But when I did the bunny emblem, I bent the ear. I tilted one of the ears down. So that was when people knew I did those jeans by seeing that bunny on there. So to make a long story short, which is too late, my name, because of course my jeans I'm going to do for myself. I'm going to make those things spectacular. <laughs> so people, you know, just evolved to be Playboy Mr. C. And then this other guy in the neighborhood, his name was Mr. C, so he wanted to fight over the name. And I forgot how the results of that happened. But it just, it was just, after a while, when your name was too lengthy, it was just too lengthy. And over a period of time, people just started calling me Playboy. And then for people who really just knew me well, like if your name is Christopher, they call you Chris. If your name is Bernard, they call you B. So after a while, people who were real close to me just called me Play, and that's how that came about. Wow, wow. Um, I want to rewind back a little bit. What happened with your father that he had to uh, end up serving time? Oh, he's a drug dealer. He's pretty much a thing. He was part of the Nicky Bonds area era. You know, Guy Fisher, all of that stuff. Um, you know, he was, he was, he, he was up there and, um, he, uh, drug dealer, hustler, all of that, uh, got into a pinch as far as, you know, some financial things, uh, that needed to be done. And he decided to rob a bank and he ended up, uh, making the front page of the daily news and the, uh, and the post. So that was like interesting for me because that was my first, uh, introduction to, national so to speak uh fame because you know my mother of course was embarrassed because you know she got tired of feds banging down our door at six in the morning and stuff like that and the neighbors in the community knowing about it and i thought you know i should be feeling some degree of a shame and stuff as well but when i would go into the local candy stores or the or the favorite haunts and stuff 
my father's nickname at the time was Skull because he's naturally bald headed. He doesn't have any hair anywhere on his body. So his nickname in the streets was Scalp or Skull. So when they knew me, I was known as either Little Scalp or mostly Little Skull. So when I went into these uh, stores, especially after this, the big one, you know, where he ended up making the paper and the family and everything, you know, I would hear people whisper saying, oh, you know who that is? And they'd know who, what? That's, that's Skull Son. That's a Little Skull. That's a Little Scalp. And um, when I'd go and want candy or a burger or whatever they were selling in the thing, they would tell me, go ahead and take it for free. So with my young mind, I'm like, wow, if you, if you do this, you get that. So that was like an interesting defining moment in my life uh, about how fame can work. Did you go down that path any yourself? Oh, most definitely. I mean, I didn't have the luxury of, um, of what several generations have today where they can look up or be inspired or encouraged by a rapper. There was no such thing. Uh, for me, in my era, it was the black exploitation films. It was just Superfly, Hell Up in Harlem, Cotton Comes to Harlem, all of that. You know, Fred Williamson, Ron O'Neill, all of that. So these were your your images. And, you know, you, you weren't really encouraged that doing the so-called right thing was going to be the golden ticket to success in a black, young black male's life. So it's like, you know, you got to get this money. You're going to get the cars. You're going to get the girls. And it was like dimensional for me in my life because here's one of them right here in my home. My father had the latest cars, the latest clothes, the jewelry, all of that that I would see on those screens, I'm seeing it in my real life. And especially when he would take me and my sisters to what you would consider his his social parties, knowing all those people, you know, we would go to their homes and stuff. And these cats had ranches, they had horses and all kinds of cars and and in-ground pools, you know, and all that kind of stuff like that. And it's like seeing those cats like Nikki Barnes and others alike was really nothing. It was like every day. So I just thought that was my legacy. So I was definitely, and plus the people that I admired in the streets, you know, the local, the ghetto stars, you know, that were out there at that time, your fat cats, your Pappy Masons, your Alpos, all of that is like, that's what I wanted to do, and that's what I thought I was supposed to do. So, yeah, I was out there in them streets. How how old were you when you did your first nefarious activity? I don't know. You know, I was speaking to you about Jeff Harris bringing uh, Grandmaster Flash and, and, and the Furious Five to the Holiday Inn. That one is one of those times where I remember, you know, I, I needed and wanted the latest gear. And I used to have a partner by the name of Everlasting, um, that we used to do our thing, you know, when, when the lights, when the night lights came on. And, um, you know, that was one of the times I remember being out there to stick someone up in order to get money, you know, to be fly for that particular party. But yeah, I was out there, sort of shotgun, snub those 38s, the whole nine. You know, it's funny when people speak of my acting ability in the movie Class Act. It wasn't me acting. I just had to just draw from a certain era in my life that I did. It's just real interesting because that was a time where it wasn't bragged on, you know, because you didn't want to get caught, you know, it was just some, and to a certain extent, you weren't that proud of it. You know, it did bring some, some street celebrity to you. There was rumors about what I had and what I would have under my three quarter sheepskin coat or whatever, but it's nothing you wanted to really brag about, but it was your hustle. 
So it was, yeah, I, you know, a lot of stuff that I owned and I had, I, all the colored sheepskins, jewelry, the latest whatever, all of that was the fruit, so to speak, of those uh, of those endeavors that I'm not proud of. I only bring them up to tell people I might not be able to tell you what to do to succeed, but I can sure enough be able to tell you what to do not to succeed. I mean, what to do not to succeed. Did you get caught or did, uh, did I mean, because how did it stop? Did, it, did you get caught or did you stop on your own volition? Well, I always tell people, and it's the truth, that God used hip-hop to save my life because what ended up surfacing is that I had a talent that I didn't know I had. Yeah, the art thing was there, but, you know, the interesting thing about me, because I got kicked out of six high school, four high schools in New York. What? And the first one I got kicked out of was art and design. And the reason why I got kicked out of there was because I lost my, uh, my passion for it because prior to going to that school, I was the man. In the junior high school I was in, I was that star like I was with painting people's jeans. When it came to the category of art, that's who the girls was going to come see, the guy, fellas was going to see, will you draw this for me? That was my identity. So when I ended up going to the high school of art and design, I, didn't, I wasn't aware that I was getting ready to go to a school where there was a bunch of me, mm-hmm. and not only a bunch of me, way better versions of me, and I wasn't that dude anymore. So that's what I started cutting school and and being out there in the streets looking for a shortcut on how to get it, you know, as they call it, they get the bag. So the interesting thing that took place, uh, a a couple of accounts, they're looking back on it today, I know it was God intervening to save my life. Like I remember when it was getting hot and you couldn't wear sheepskin anymore and the sort of shotgun was becoming um annoying you know and there's no way i could wear that under a summer shirt you know so i wanted to consolidate and i ended up getting an offer for it to be bought outright with a significant amount of cash because it was also a collector's item i probably got a got a boatload way more boatload of money for it if it hadn't been sawed off but it was a it was a collector's item it was a um a vintage piece that was still working um so i ended up getting a nice amount of money for it i ended up getting like uh two snub-nosed 38 revolvers and three illegal high-powered pellet guns. And I ended up getting a whole bag load of uh, bullets and um, stuff for the the 38s and for um, the the pellet joints that looked like real guns. So one day when I'm after making the trade and uh, I hopped the train style, I had all of this stuff in my backpack. And that was right around the time that the mayor at the time, Mayor Koch, I believe, had passed a law uh, to try and control the gun situation in New York. So he passed a law saying if you got caught with a gun, I think he was going to do an automatic five years. And for every bullet that's in the chamber that you have on you, it's going to be a bullet for every year. So like I said, not only did I have all of the chambers full in these guns, uh, I also had like boxes of, of, of ammunition. and um, Cop stopped me right when I jumped the train style, and he just gave me a speech. He, you know, he had every right to take me down because it was in the middle of. Not only did I hop the train style, it was in the middle of the day. I was supposed to be in school, so he read me this. He gave me this long speech and hollered at me and and all of this stuff, and he just gave me a warning. So he said, "Well, listen, before I give you a warning, you know, just show me some ID." And I didn't have no ID, and he got even madder and read me the riot act all over again, and then threatened saying, listen, what I ought to do is throw you up against that ground, up the wall, 
because he put me in a what they had was a holding cell. It was a temporary holding cell they had in the subway station. So he thought to throw you up against the wall, frisk you, go in your bag, because he didn't think anything was in there but books, and take you down to the station and call your parents and let them come get you. But he said, I'll never forget this. He said, but there's something about you. He's looking at me dead in my eye, like a real stare in my eye. He's some some about you, and I'm gonna let you go. But I better not catch you here again. Get out of here. And um, if he would have went in my bag, that I guarantee you, that would have been a life changer. You know, for me, there'd be no interview right now. Wow. Probably. Well, it, it it was a life changer in other ways. <laughs> it was. It was. Well, it was a couple of those. It was a couple of those instances that made me finally realize at the right moment, like, wow, you know, God's trying to tell you something, so to speak. What was your, um, your relationship with your mom? Did she know what you were doing? No, I broke her heart. I mean, she put being a single parent dealing with me and my sisters and we're all a year apart, you know, she had quite a load on her, something she didn't consciously sign up for. So those, I, I never forget when she busted me playing, as what we called hooky or, 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 or not going to school. And rather than approaching me, she caught me right in the subway because she ended up seeing me. I didn't see her. Or I did see her, and I didn't think she saw me, and she ended up rolling right up on me. And she didn't even have the words to yell at me, curse me out or whatever. She just walked away, and that kind of affected me. And then when I used to experiment with, you know, I was a big pothead back then too, and I ended up messing around with some angel dust in one of my joints and um, I ended up bugging out. She had to come to the hospital to get me out and I'll never forget the face, the, the look on her face when she came to to get me out and stuff. So over a period of time, but it was, it was a big, a lot of disappointment at the time, a lot of heartbreaks at the time. Your father, how long did he end up serving? He said he was in and out a lot. You know, that last term, the one with the bank robbery, he was sentenced to 20 years. He actually brought me with me, brought me with him on his sentencing. It was on my birthday. And um, he was sentenced to like 20, 25 years, but it got reduced down to five. He, um, Lord saved him. He became a born-again Christian. And uh, he's been a preacher for forever now, you know. Well, that's dope there. At least, at least, at least we, got a, we got a good change in, uh, in that part right there. Your relationship with him right now is good? Oh, he's my best friend, conciliary, you know, all of that stuff. But, not, yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting, uh, and it could get deep, but it's interesting how we got time for that. Sons, sons <laughs> usually consciously or subconsciously want to outdo their fathers. So your father, when you know them, and sometimes even when you don't, they're always going to be your hero. You're not, you might not be conscious of it or not. But they're your hero. And to a certain degree, you want to outdo them. So whatever they're doing at the time, you know, you nine times out of ten, you might end up doing it, and you want to be better than them at it. So there's that street life. But then to see him publicly make a declaration and repent and go what he needs to go through to show that the change is legit, that has an effect on people who are watching. So, of course, when he that happened with him a lot of people and his running buddies and stuff and even family members thought okay you're only using this to get out so you know god delivers and did what god does but still in regards to people who need to believe it and will eventually believe it 
you know, you still have to deal with, you know, that's a different kind of time you got to do, different kind of sentence you got to do. So to just see him turn his life around, go back to school at the age he went back to school, become a counselor in the Rikers prison system. And even now, as the minister that he is for well over 30 plus 40 some years, he where he ministers every, uh, you know, every uh, month is the prison systems, you know, so that's his, his thing. That's his assignment. That is amazing. That's an amazing story. I never knew that. I never knew that mm-hmm. right there. Um, let's fast forward a little bit, man. Tell me about the Turnout Brothers and the Super Lovers. Um, you know, then we didn't have, of course, what we had today. So the interesting thing about that is for me and my peers at the time, it gave us a passion. It gave us a purpose. Like I used to be in a band prior to this. Matter of fact, one of the members, his name was Clarence, uh, what was Clarence? Clarence Stanley. I forgot what his stage name was, but he used to be part of the original members of, um, what was the name of that group? Um, the Don Barron and uh, Grand Poobah used to, Bastards of Ceremony. Okay. That's the name of the group. And he was one of the original members. But prior to him doing that, he was a drummer. You know, I was a leader rhythm guitarist, and we had some other members in this band. We was like, going to be the the musician version of the Jackson 5 because we was way young but our talents on instruments was phenomenal so then uh Clarence was doing his thing out there in them streets too but his family decided to move him out to a place they thought would be better for him to change his ways and whenever he would come back around the neighborhood he kept trying to tell us because again this is so important hip-hop didn't have a hip-hop didn't have a name all you could do is just talk about what was being done on the turntables and the microphone. So here's this um, thing, birthing or, or here's a word I'm trying to find for it. Incubating? Incubate, thank you. Incubating up in the Bronx, and that's where his parents sent him to be. He kept coming every once in a while to visit, and he kept telling us about basically playing music that way is getting played out. We need to get hip to this thing that people are doing. There's no name for it. So anyway, um, for us, once it finally got to us by way of cassette tape or, yeah, because you had what was going on in the parks and people were taping them and they were making their way to the different boroughs. So here we are wanting to do our own thing. So you have these these crews that get birthed. Quicksilver and the Super Lovers was who I was a part of. And we were into what you would, some people call a gimmick or I would prefer a concept where what's our concept? What's our theme? What's the thing people we want people to to, to hook with? So my best friend, and other parts in the crew is was Romeo. His name was Jerome, but we called him Rome. But we started calling him Romeo. Like I said, I've already explained how I became Playboy. Then we had um, uh, Herbie, who would be known as Herbie the Love Bug. Um, and then we had Quicksilver, phenomenal DJ at the time. So our thing was dope on the mic, but our main thing is taking these legendary names and really using them to our advantage. So that was Quicksilver and the Super Lovers. 
Mm-hmm. Now, Romeo had a brother by Bernard who went by the name of Rocking B, who was a phenomenal DJ, but he also was an aspiring rapper. But he, through a series of events, he ended up creating a group called the Turnout Brothers, where Kid was a part of that group, and his full name was the Kid Cool Out, along with Clevio, Mark E. B., and like I said, Rockin' B. So it was friendly competition, but nevertheless, it was competition. It was iron sharpening iron. And the funny thing about us, when we were making a name, not only in Queens, a very sought out of a name, we were coming very much to celebrity, but our names and our thing was, was really reaching out of the boroughs as well. And I remember when you had these events at the Audubon, at Harlem World, all of that stuff up in Manhattan and the Bronx, you know, one of the most exciting times was, was when they would have these awards and these competitions, and it meant everything for outside of, outside of the Bronx or Manhattan for your name to get invited, because that means you were you were you were ringing bells, you were making noise. And I still have a couple of those flyers, or at least photographs of them, where we were invited, and that was like everything. So you know that was our thing, you know. And the interesting thing was we'd have these battles at the the local high schools and stuff, and it was so funny because of course there's this competition. Every competition we had between the Turnout Brothers and the Super Lovers, like who won that night or whatever, it would always go back and forth. Like we could literally say, yo, who won last time? It'd be like, oh, the Turnout Brothers. All right, Super Lovers is going to win this time. And it wasn't rigged. That's just the way it would be. (laughs) We would always know. It was like clockwork. Who's going to win? Because it always went back and forth. But the thing that was phenomenal about those days is of course, like I said, the unauthorized recording of the cassette tape recordings of those events, we would go out of our way. Like when we knew we had a jam to do at someone's party or at a high school and stuff, you wouldn't see us for days prior to that event because we'd be practicing our butts off, practicing, creating new routines, and it'd be a secret. You didn't want nobody to hear it until it was time for the performance. <laughs> and when we would perform it and someone would record it, that there would be the talk of the town, whoever won. Now, whoever didn't win, you still was awesome, too, because there'd be, still be some debate about who really won. So you still, being coming in second or whatever was still all right. But, right. you know, human nature, you want to be the one. But I, I, with no exaggeration, this is the truth. The thing that was so incredible about that is the next day, and at least for the next three days, the hype of that show or whatever went on, it would be taped, and you'd hear it on people's boxes in the park, in their cars, or whatever. So, you know, that was what we know today is what's viral, but that was that then, you know. So it's like just to hear people playing your – primitive recording the next day like it's a, a hit record was crazy you you, know? you still have any of those tapes you know i kind of do i'd have to search but i know people who have you know who has all of that stuff believe it or not who's that Bismarcky. oh no i don't doubt it <laughs> i don't Bismarcky has it all every time we see this guy he brings it up all the time and he don't even call us by no kid and playing none of that he always refers to us the Super Lovers and Turnout Brothers, but he has those. Biz is a digital archivist at his finest. Yeah, yeah, he has them. 
He's he got them. All right, so then um, y'all are going back and forth. Y'all are battling one another. How do you eventually end up with Kid? Well, the thing about it is this is interesting, the different journeys. Uh, what ended up happening with the Turnout Brothers was they were embraced by the Supreme Team. You remember them, yep. those, those guys? Yeah, they were embraced because they had a radio show before they had recording success. And they embraced the Turnout Brothers. So every once in a while, kind of almost on the regular, they would bring them up to their station. And it was a huge thing for these guys to be either shouted out that they were in the studio while the, the, the show was on or either to hear them. So that was like huge. So that's the Turnout Brothers going through their journey with, believe it or not, the Force MDs because that was their journey too through the Supreme Team. Wow. So with us, the Super Lovers, we, the, the thing that blew everything away because the epitome of hip-hop then was the disco fever. That was the epitome. That was, the, the disco fever was where everyone hung out from flashing them to the Sugar Hill Gang to the Treacherous Three to Curtis Blow to Lovebug Starsky. I mean, the list goes on. That's where, along with every kingpin drug dealer in the world as well, too. So we had, like, we had our fair share of gangsters and street thugs that was ruling queens. Like I said, Fat Cat and all of that. But they loved them some Quicksilver and Super Lovers. They loved us. Because we had this one routine we did. We had several of them that we were well known for. But Cat Stevens, the artist, had a record called was Dog or Donut. created a routine off of that where the record was dum 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 well we made a chorus to go with super lover MCs not like the other MCs where so that's what we did and then we had you know every the rapper and it rapped. So this thing was huge. Along with something else we also had a routine off of Shalomar's Make This a Night to Remember. So now my You know, all of this kind of stuff. So anyway, um, one of the big drug kids there, his name was Bourne, uh, also known as Karate Mike because he mastered karate. And as you know, in that era, karate was a big thing, especially karate movies. Exactly. But he was the real deal. And plus the prison time he did there, he was known for knocking brothers out in the whole nine. So we couldn't be touched. And I couldn't really be touched either because my father had name out in the street. So I, I had some some nice coverage, but <laughs> this guy loved us, and he and his cats would go to the fever on the regular. But see, the thing about the disco fever was not anybody could go. So even no matter like that, almost separated you from the real and the unreal because even with him and his people, 
being from Queens, they had that kind of credibility. And I guess because of former cellmates that they had, you know, catch you became tight within Rikers or Elmira or wherever you went uh, and did time. So um, he loved us. And he like, yo, I'm taking you to the fever. Because the fever around that time would have or did have a uh, a talent showcase, a talent competition. So back then, you know, the big thing was uh, OJ. You know, it was even in rap records. Everybody, yo, hotel, motel, what you gonna do today? Cause I'm gonna get a fly girl, gonna get some spank and drive off in a death OJ. Everybody. You know, it was That's right. for you to be able to rent an OJ. Right. So he got all of that, took us up there. We lost our minds because I'm looking on one corner of the room. There's part of the members of Grandmaster Flash. I'm looking at the other. There goes so-and-so, and there goes so-and-so. This is like, it's like, you know, that version of you just seeing all the celebrities you love and whatever your genre is, it's your thing. So we're there. He has juice, the term they called it back then. He gets us in the contest. We won. We won first place. <laughs> Was there a prize? You're talking, you're talking New York, a New York situation. No one borough, no two or three borough. This is the disco fever, man. Word has spread. We're first place. And we're also eligible now. Not eligible. We are automatically part of the big, big contest you know, that goes with all the winners they've had over however long the thing goes. We okay. get back to Queens, we are the talk of the town. Ain't nobody trying to hear nothing about no no Supreme team, no radio shows or whatever. <laughs> Yo, disco fever, son. You know, it's like something you see in the movies where it's like now even, you know, the thuggest of thugs and the flies to the fly girls is like, you know, now you, you, you it. And we ain't bad looking either. Yo, forget about it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so we win first place. Now we are part of the big, big thing, and we enter in it. And who I become friends with now also in my travels is um, becoming close with, and this is why I always shout him out and nothing but love to him, uh, two or three people to this day. One of them is Jalil from Houdini. Rap machine, I'ma give you what I got, your yeah, baby, that's plenty. And never has one man rock so many. I'ma make you wet, it makes you sweat. Just to see how funky you can get. Now when I'm on the mic, I do so well. And I go by the name of the rapper Jalil. Yeah. Because I'll never forget, for whatever reason, he embraced me. Whenever we run into each other, you know, you want to be associated with success. Make sure the girls see who you know is like this guy always showing me love. Never once, like, act like he didn't know me, even though we just spoke at the last thing. Just, yo, how you doing? You hanging in there? You ain't give up? You know, you didn't want to be a casualty in the statistics of them streets. So he was one. The one person, when we did the contest, that took us under his wing and loved the heck out of us, that I always show love for, Curtis Blow. Clap your hands, everybody, if you got what it takes. Cause I'm Curtis Blow, and I want you to know that these are the boys. Now, when we did the contest, we didn't win first, but we won third. And you might as when you won third, you might as well have won first. And I think 
the reason why ours was exceptional because we was the only rap group did one third. I think the other two was like singers or something like that. So as far as we were concerned, we won first place in the big, big one. But how we also ended up winning was Curtis Blow loved it so much, he wanted to make sure that we we really won. So his good friend at the time was John Jellybean Benitez. John Jellybean Benitez was responsible for every remix, every extended version of every hit, pop, R&B, whatever record that was going on. He brought, introduced us to Jelly Bean. Jelly Bean heard our stuff. He loved us and was trying to make the Dog of Donut an actual record, like a rap version of it. But what ended up happening was Cat Stevens, the maker of that record, ended up becoming a monk. And he wanted nothing to do with any of the stuff that he ever did in entertainment. He was just about being purity, nothing to do with the evils of the world ended up becoming a monk where the monk you become isolated you go up on some high mountains and stuff like this and maybe you come down or contact the world every once every six months or something like that so we had to keep waiting for him to be in contact with his people to give permission for us to use was dog a donut and if memory served me well either one or two things happened there's too much time elapsed and it never happened or he said no one of the two we didn't do it. But what was so interesting was our relationship with Jelly Bean, where whenever he spun at, whatever club, you normally people wouldn't give us the time of day, like those famous scenes you see in the movie where they, they disrespect you at the rope, the red red velvet rope trying yeah. to come into a club. Oh, we we, we they we became regulars, man. He you know, he let them know. These guys let them in. It doesn't make no difference. So that changed my life greatly because up to then describing to you before about all I thought was being a stick up kid and being out there in them streets was all that was out there for me. When I was invited to clubs like the fun house, 1018, all these places where jelly bean spun at and frequented, it was where, especially club 1018 was the first time I saw, Madison Avenue and Fifth Avenue people dancing with the streets, Mm. you know, women that evidently just came from, you know, Madison Avenue, still in their work clothes, working out with a homeboy with an Adidas suit on, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) And stuff like that. So it just let me know that there was more to life than what I thought there was. So um, in answer to your question, over a period of time and the wear and tear of things happening, but nothing really coming out of it because the Supreme team was trying to make things happen with the Turnout Brothers too. But during that time, um, during that time, you also had us still living life. You know, time to get jobs, no longer feeling comfortable living under our parents' roof. Some of us having babies now with our girlfriends. So now the crews are beginning to, you know, not be anymore because of life kicking in. 
And uh, over a period of time, the only two left standing was uh, Christopher Kid Reed and Christopher Play Martin. And then Fresh Force was birthed. And so, all right, so around that time, that's what, 86? I'm bad with years, so to <laughs> say so. Uh, yeah, I would say probably. Because so, so bi- then we got introduced. We got introduced to another very well-known, like a tear under Jelly Bean. His name was Charlie Casanova. And Charlie Casanova was also responsible for a lot of remixing hit records. Because then the thing I do, I give it all that I got. And that's including the times when you're hot and I'm not. But first things first and last things last. Charlie, turn on my mic so I could ask him a zazz. And he did a lot of stuff for WBLS, which was like the number one radio station at the time, especially when it came to like black R&B and stuff like that. KTU, 92 KTU Kiss, that was more like Jelly Beans type thing because you had more like that other stuff going on. Uh, So with all that being said is, is that with Charlie Casanova, us getting introduced to him to create Fresh Boss, he also had an end. Like, he, too, spun at all of the top clubs with the dance-type clubs and stuff like that. So he was, like, our – he was our, our producer for a lot of our Fresh Force records. So tell me about She's a Skeezer. Well, the big thing then was remakes or parodies. You know, um, somebody who was very, very good and very famous for it was Ed Lover. Uh, he never actually, to my recollection, actually made a record. But one of the things people looked forward to his live antics on um, stage, especially at the uh, Latin Quarter, was he would take a record that was really popular and do a parody to it. Like uh, Houdini's Funky Beat, he did a parody called Donkey Meat, which was really a play off of the size of his, his right. private part. Right. So. It was it was things that were beginning to happen where people were doing doing sequels to records and you know things of that nature. So you know that's what we felt was going to be an easy end or part of a, a, a segue into what we were really wanting to do eventually. And a big record at the time was My Adidas by Run DMC. My- And a popular term for a groupie back then was a skeezer. So we put the two together, and that's what we created. Yo, Holmes, what's up? Yo, we rocked or what? You know, you know it. Yo, you saw that girl out there, man? She's giving me the eye. I'm getting those digits. Yo, man, I saw it, man. But, yo, d- don't don't deal with that, man. Yo, man, what's up? Come on, man. Don't you know? She's a skeezer. Because every time I rock, always waiting backstage. To clock my top, my girlfriend may score me. My friends try to warn me. Before I know it, she's got her hands. We also did it with Falco's Rock Me Amadeus. Come and rock me up a day. 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 Come and rock me up a day.
Casanova. We wanna know if y'all down to rock with us as we prepare to get busy. So come on and count it off with the posse. One, two, three, four, rock me, rock me. did a piece called rock me and um i know i'm missing another one one original one was all hail the drum that was an original one step up a lift and try to be brave playboy is gonna dig your lyrical grave stronger than ever filled with defiance team with the drum a deadly alliance combining like a scorpion's fatal sting resulting in your suffering defeat is assured and i know this photo when do you human while i and we were getting some real um good tri-state success in action new york jersey and philadelphia one thing i want to say that i'd be remiss is a lot of people give New York credit for being the birth of hip hop. I sometimes have a struggle with that because if you want to keep it 100, it was really Philly that embraced hip hop or rap more than New York did. Hmm. Uh, all uh, props and, and kudos and shout out to Lady B out in Philly was actually the first one that ever played hip hop broke a, a rap record on FM on an FM station. That's Philly. She's cute, she's sexy, and oh so fine. Listen to Lady B on Power 199. That is FM, in case you don't know. From one to five, that's where she throws. On Sundays, yes, because she is fresh. Listen to Lady B, cause she's the best. Most of the gigs that we would have and Bismarcky and Big Daddy Kane and a lot of the artists it was out in Philly. Or South Jersey, wow. you know, and when we got through, in the, no matter how late it was, the wee hours of the morning after the thing, we'd all meet at, a, at one particular diner all the time. And that diner was in where we lived at in Queens, East Almost Queens, New York. It was called the Buccaneer. And um, so that was that. But no, um, Philly doesn't get all of the props that they uh, deserve in regards to how they held rap down, how they supported it and how a lot of our early um, support as far as live and getting paid gigs was Philly. Took a minute for New York to finally did its thing. And a matter of fact, it's funny because Lady B shared, to, shared with me that Fly Ty even had let her know that no, it wasn't Mr. Magic who first did it officially. It was her. Wow. That's a dope little hip hop nugget I, I was not aware of. Yeah. <clears throat> We just passed the 30th anniversary of Too Hype. Just passed. Don't say. Yeah, October. It was 30 years. Um, The gear. Dapper Dan, he hooked it up for you? (laughs) No, those, well, I designed all of that stuff. Due to the fact that I. I, You had your art art background. Yeah, I mean, Uh that. The salt and pepper jackets, all of that stuff, I designed all those things. The awesome thing about my relationship with Dapper Dan and and uh, even still to this day is the fact that at the time I didn't have a facility to make them. 
So, of course, Dapper Dan was the place to be, Eric B. and Rakim, a lot of cats, drug cats, all of that. You know, it was Dapper Dan, you know, with the Fendi or the Gucci or whatever. MCM. So to still have that um, that kind of status with it, but, you know, we were never one to want to be like everybody else. You know, Herbie um, wanted me to design something. You know, uh, well, I had created the salt and pepper logo. So their logo is what I created. So to take that logo and to apply it to something living or there was going to be an action, but in regards to the two heights, you know, that was the leather and velour uh, sweatshirts that were designed and uh, took it to my man. The thing that was interesting about Dap and how things came to be is Dap was infamously known for not having your stuff ready on time. (laughs) So one of the things Herbie and I knew is that the best way to get it on time or close to it is you got to stand in his face. Because if you leave, you know, it's out of sight, out of mind. So when I did those jackets, I had to live there at his shop, no matter what, because we were on a heavy deadline for those jackets. And if you remember the Push It video, there's there's logo is on a real big thing behind them. I ended up painting that by hand in my apartment at the time. So I had to have that ready with their jackets and be on a flight to make it for that video to be filmed in Florida. So the same thing going back to the two hype things that had those was done for the getting funky video. Um, but eventually, you know, for our show shows, live shows. I didn't know that was filmed in Florida. I was Yeah. Oh man. That... Well I have an interesting story about push it. You know, it's so interesting to be around defining moments. Um until Kid and I, you know, finally took off. You know, Herbie's my dude and was my dude, you know, and he he and I were the only ones that really had the courage to go to places no person would go, especially coming from Queens. We we risked our lives a lot to be where we had no business being. We saw people pretty much almost get killed in front of us. But um when we did uh there was a there was a uh joint, I think it was Florida too. I might be mistaken of the place, but I'm I'm pretty sure it was Florida. Yeah, it must have been. So it was a gig that the girls had, salt and pepper, with uh Jeff and Will. And I forgot who else was on the bill. But I can't think of the artist's name, but it was a record called Throw the D. There's a brand new dance and it's coming your way. It was started in Miami by the get a DJ. Say some call it nasty, but that's not true. Just the only dance that you can do. Cause you need a sexy body, make your partner come alive. If they can't do that, don't even try. So get yourself together and learn it quick. Just get on the floor and throw the D. That's too loud. And, okay. We we weren't familiar with them. And I think they closed the show that night. And when they played that record, the crowd went bananas. And Herbie and I, especially Herbie, couldn't believe our ears. We're like, what is this? Because we weren't familiar with that type of tempo. music that or temp- that kind of version. In that, that tempo. Exactly. Right. But Herbie couldn't get it out of his head on how this crowd was going bananas. So I'll never forget. He said, watch play. I'm going to make one of these. Watch. Just wait. I'm going to make one of these. 
We go back to New York. I don't know how much time went by, but that record that he made based on that night was Push It. Is based on throw that D. <laughs> no, it was based on the reaction the of reaction. people reacting to that tempo and that thing. That's what happened. That is that is interesting. That, yeah, Luke Pack Jam. That was a uh, Pack Jam was his famous club in Miami. And mm-hmm. uh, oh, I actually got a funny little story about Pack Jam. When you know I was coming up DJing, I was notorious for reading everything on the label I possibly could. And in the spring of 87, I was going down there to uh, for spring break to visit with my aunt. So I called the number that was on the Skywalker album. And I told right. him I was this big time DJ in Dallas and I'll be in town for a little bit and I need to come get some records. <laughs> so uh, when I got there, they had two huge boxes full of stuff. Two live crew, wow. Anquanet. MC Shady. Everybody. Yeah. So <laughs> I had all that. I had all that. And I was like, oh, so there is a way to get free stuff. I was never able to yeah. get no free stuff from Herbie. I tried, but. <laughs> you see, the thing about Herbie was, you know, you're dealing with Luke and it's one entity. Herbie right. had all these relationships with so many different labels from uh, Next Plateau to Select right. to Profile to you know, all of that. So I'm not sure what happened, but I know that had probably had something to do with it. But uh, yeah, that was a, that was an interesting experience to see this to that, you know, when um, VH1 or out or were you aware VH1 name rolling with kid and play the number 63 uh, number, number 63 on the 100 greatest hip hop songs of all time. Were you aware of that? I didn't know that. No, I'm not. Mm -mm. What do you remember about Rolling With Kid and Play? Um, The thing about it, the great thing about Idolmakers, that was the name of the the company and the the crew, because everybody's a crew, Boogie Down Productions, you know, um, uh, the Juice Crew, ours was Idolmakers, uh, Salt and Pepper, Kid and Play, Dana Dang, Kwame, Antoinette, um, you know, the list goes on. Um, 
the when the girls did shake your thing. You know, and prior to that, you know, there's this go-go thing that's happening. And then at the same time, too, we had got introduced to the Howard Homecoming, which I'll never forget. And it had such an impact on us. We almost just lived there. We ended up <laughs> renting, I mean, getting hotel rooms and was never going to leave. We turned those hotel rooms into our homes. <laughs> but um, just being introduced to that whole Chuck Brown and the clubs that were there and that, just that whole go-go thing. So that was pretty much the birth of Shake Your Thing, Salt and Pepper's Shake Your Thing, and then the great relationship we had with EU as well. So it was only right when it was time for um, us to do our album was to have some kind of um, representation or an appreciation for the co the go-go culture. So that's basically what that was about, you know, or came birth from. From that, from from the Chuck Brown and the what's that? The, Just that whole influence that whole because influence, like rare, the, rare essence and all it, those. exactly. Right. And the thing about it is, like I said, with being in that Florida area and being exposed to their expression of hip hop at the time, then for us to be in Washington D.C. and hanging out for a very lengthy period at Howard, you know, and being introduced to that culture, where we're getting exposed to different expressions and different loves for different types of expressions in it so much to the point where we're loving it we want to respect it and we want that to be a part of showing you know our journey where it isn't just east elmer's queens you know what i'm saying it's the diversity of it which we seem to do you know we we, we pulled off very well you know getting funky we Funky is interesting to me because I think that record became mostly successful because of people feeling a certain kind. And this is just what I think, my thoughts on the philosophy on it. When we did um, Do This My Way. And Troopette should notice. Listen close, don't blow this chance. To get next to the opposite sex, it means if you ain't down, use the exit. Just like Brutus, we always knew this. On the strip, y'all, we can do this my way. What we went through to make that record was almost, it was painstaking. Because Herbie being the perfectionist and genius that he is, he wanted that track to be a certain kind of way. He didn't want it to be as simple as we just took this sample and looped it. He wanted to put as much unique, complicated um, um, production in it as possible. And I'll never forget how frustrating it was for our engineer 
the our go-to engineer for all of our records, Andre DeBorg. We call him Andre, the Lord of the Lord of the Board, DeBorg, and he wanted it to be broken down a certain way where I'm not able to articulate it exactly, but he wanted something to be removed, but it was going to be hard to do because it was going to interfere with the looping of the beat or staying on beat, but it was finally done. When we finished that record, we knew we finally had a hit because it was our record and our next antics was already anticipated after last night. Hmm, wonder what Playboy's doing. He called up play and asked if he'd do me a favor. Help me get skeezed, he said. All right, kid, I'm going to do this for you. But make sure I get a piece, too. He gave me the sign. I gave him the cue. Pick me up in his BMW. People love last night. So it's like, okay, is this a fluke? What do you guys got coming? And our, our follow-up to that was do this my way. And we knew that 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 we knew we had a hit. But lo and behold, here comes a dude out of uptown by the name of Rob Bass. to get down i'm not internationally known but i'm known to rock the microphone because i get stupid and he used the same record but he didn't put the work into it or his producer didn't put the same work into it we put into it and because of the favoritism of red alert chuck chill out and all of them is like are you going to support these queens guys or are you going to support your homeboy fellow harlem uptown money money making manhattan do you do I need to say more? Nope. So <laughs> I'm gonna call I'm gonna call front, I'm gonna call Chuck Chill out uh after this as a matter of fact, D, to hear yeah, his side of the story. Can, <laughs> you cannot for well, there's not much to tell. I mean, you know, from his thing is which one we gonna play. I mean, I don't even know if it was that much of a thought. It's like and plus you can't front. It takes two. You know, it's a great concept or theme or whatever. You know, so that record explodes. It takes two, and we're like, dag. But the great thing that took place about our record is when you played um, It Takes Two on radio and in the parties, what other record are you going to mix it with? Right, because it was so Every time they played that, they played Do This My Way. Plus, we had a great music video that was well talked about, you know, out there. So... We just needed to be patient, and we doing we're doing really really well. But we didn't have the number one spot the way theirs was. We was like right on the heels of that. So I feel this is where it's my philosophy that I could be wrong and be disputed, but I don't think I'm I am wrong. Is that when it was time for our next record? I believe because people did love do this my way. They did love the music video. It's like. Yo, if these guys give us something decent, we'll support this. This is like their subliminal thoughts. So when we came with Getting Funky, not only did we deliver and come out with a hot, like my concept for the music video was people want to give us so much credit for our dancing. Let's bring everybody together 
in the community in which we are from and who influences or inspires us. Let's give props to all these dancers we hang out with on the regular, in the clubs, in our private lives, around the way, in the clubs, whatever, whatever, whatever. It was an ode to New York, the New York dance culture and community. So we delivered. So I believe a lot of the motivation and the support, and thanks to all the DJs and video video shows out there for showing that love, but I think it had also somewhat to do with, you know what, we kind of owe these guys. And, you know, we we helped. We helped them help us, you know. And we'll put a pause on it right here. Part one of my interview with Christopher Play Martin from Kid and Play. And I got to let you know, FYI, I did reach out to Biz Marquis about getting some of those old school tapes of the Super Lovers versus the Turnout Brothers. And I got a polite, <laughs> yeah, right. Biz Mark is not coming off of those classics that he has in his archives. And when he told me he turned down LL Cool J for the same request, okay, I couldn't be mad at it. Um... I was able, however, to reach out to Chuck Chillout and ask him, was it true you guys played a little favoritism with Rob Bass and it takes two over Kid and Play and do it my way? I don't, you know, I don't know where he got that ridiculous story from because I played Kid Play records, you know what I mean? Because I was, I was more more excited to, to Wiz than those guys, you know what I mean? So I always supported Wiz because I was, he was the DJ for the group, and then I got to meet, you know, homie later on. But um, I played their records, you know. But Rob Bass was from home. You know what I mean? He wasn't from the Bronx. Anything that was hot, I spun it. And and those records had about them. Those dudes had like four or five hit records in a row when they first came out. So I definitely supported them. So my man, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know where you get them nervous stories from because I don't know, bro. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you a funny guy, Rob. What do you do? Here he goes. Here he goes. Here he goes. Oh. And then he starts doing some ridiculous chant, and that's where we had to cut the conversation short. Coming up on part two of the conversation with Christopher Play Martin, he talks about how Kid and Play broke into Hollywood, how he battled depression and thoughts of suicide, and how a health scare almost threatened his career. You know, what I learned is I was legally blind, at least in that eye. Still to this day, we don't know actually what caused it, which makes it even more scary. But it was it was very divinely told to me. It was going to be the entry of, of a new vision, not necessarily physical, but needed for moving forward. Look for that episode January 1st. That's Tuesday, 2019. We'll finish up the conversation. I'll talk with Christopher Play Martin from Kid and Play. Thank you all for listening. Uh, again, please. Rate and review the podcast. I would truly appreciate all your help and support. You can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at either Rob G. The General or at The Cut Curator. Do both of them if you're not already. All right? Appreciate y'all. And until next time, Happy New Year to everyone. Peace.